0: this is the antidote by amani this is the antidote the culture and politics podcast for millennials and gen z to search for the cure to today's viral social issues today december 7th is an important day for two reasons First, today is officially the deadline for voter registration in Georgia for the runoffs, aka the elections that might likely determine how the next four years are going to go for the entire Biden administration. These runoffs obviously are highly influential in terms of flipping our Senate and really liberating us from the shackles of our bipartisanship for this entire freaking era. It's time for a change, and I'm really, really looking forward to seeing the magic that's going to come out of the Georgia runoffs, just like we did during the presidential elections, in large part to the exceptional Black women that are organizing on the ground there to break historic records, enabling and engaging communities that have long been ignored that's why it's almost poetic that today also happens to be the five-year anniversary of a speech that will infamously be fossilized in the forsaken shadows of our country's dark deluded history aka when trump actually called for a muslim ban yeah it was a dark day in american history and it's it's really hard to believe that it's been 5 years since that came to the forefront of our national consciousness it's funny because at the time it seemed almost ridiculous completely exceptional something that is just a figment of some weird racist man's fantasy To think of the possibility of banning an entire group of people from entering our country solely because of their religious background. Obviously, for myself, having been a child when 9-11 happened, growing up during the post-9-11 era, unfortunately, it was something that was not all too surprising for me. Interestingly enough, my first book, Muslim Girl, A Coming of Age, was actually a Hail Mary pass right before the 2016 elections. That was kind of my plea to the public of, look, this is what that experience looks like. This is why we cannot afford to repeat it. And unfortunately, that's that's exactly what ended up happening over the course of our our history in recent years. We actually just celebrated the four year anniversary of when the Muslim Girl book was published. And almost just as poetically, it actually landed, the anniversary landed right on the launch day of this podcast. And that was not even planned. Uh, This podcast was actually supposed to launch in an entirely different day. And truth be told, running for Congress this year and with everything going on, it completely slipped my mind that we were commemorating four years of my first book. So it just serendipitously happened that the start of this new chapter, this new platform for representing our voices in this new space that wasn't meant for us it just so happened to really just beautifully coincide with um this this book which was really uh, a very momentous milestone um for me in many ways but before I get into that let's just talk about where we were five years ago okay like can we just hit rewind for a sec Can you all just take a moment to pause with me, time travel with me for a moment, okay? Wherever you're at listening to this. (laughs) I hate to admit that I do this more often than you would like to think because five years ago was a much, much brighter time than today. And I'm sure everyone listening can agree with me on that one, okay? This time five years ago, We were still riding the fumes of the summer of Fetty This is where I'm going to start things off because that, in my opinion, just sets the vibe entirely. And yes, Jersey pride. Shout out to my Jersey people. Huge pride for Patterson, New Jersey, aka Fetty hometown, aka the biggest population of Arabs after Dearborn. Yeah. That's right there in my home state of Jersey. And that is the source of the wave for that entire summer. At that time, Muslim Girl was not yet even a company. It was little more than still the passion project that I was running post college and trying to make happen. And not many people know this, but at that time, your girl was pretty much homeless. I had spent the last penny to my name on this venture that I believed in with my entire heart and soul. And I could no longer afford rent. Didn't really have a place to stay besides the couches that I was surfing on from a friend of a friend's place to the next. And it was only a few short weeks after that, after that bombshell of Trump's declaration in the midst of the chaos that was my life and the turmoil of the political climate that was unfolding around me, that we secured our first investor for that unlikely venture. And a few short weeks after that is when Muslim Girl became the first Muslim company to ever land on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. And I get to say that right now with the most immense pride you can imagine because just last week my own younger brother Amir al khatatba landed on the Forbes 30 under 30 list too making it a family tradition my little brother got on the media list for his Instagram page at Muslim which you all should definitely follow but I'm I'm so super super proud of him we all hey, we all know where he gets it from, okay, and it just excites me greatly that there is now more of a reason for people to need to know how to spell our last name, (laughs) but, you know, it it is something that is wild to think about, you know, that five years later, it's crazy that now we have the second Al-Qahtapa on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, Likewise, for continuing to expand the space for voices like ours to be included in the conversation. And five years ago, obviously this was something that was imperative to us and that formed the basis of the need for us to strengthen and and empower um, not just a media platform, but also an institution like Muslim Girl for our community to have to be able to inject our voices into the mainstream conversations that were directly impacting us. Because at that time, in the midst of all the noise of the Trump ban, hey, I'm not gonna lie to you. At first, it almost was going to look like what resembled my experience growing up, which was always seeing the talking heads Speaking for us on our behalf that never looked like us, that never represented us, that never came from our communities or could speak to our lived experiences. Always the ones doing the talking, always the ones centered in those conversations. And at Muslim Girl, we demanded that not only we be included in those conversations, but that we be passed the mic to lead them and to lead the discourse on how a lot of the policies that were shaping around us and the world around us, how they were coming down and impacting our everyday lives on a day-to-day basis. In establishing an alternative media platform on our own terms, that was our way of directing the conversation the way that we wanted, centering the issues and the topics that were Necessary for us to have uh, to create space for at that time and always moving forward, you know. I started Muslim Girl as a blog out of my bedroom when I was in high school, but I think that it was studying political science in college that really equipped me with the understanding, the insight of how media can make a political impact. You know, the thing is, we always refer to the media as the fourth branch of the government, right? We have the executive, we have the legislative, we have the judicial, and then we have media, which we like to think it's not really officially, you know, a, a branch of the government, but we refer to it as such because of its profound presence in the balance, in being a check on the government, in many ways being the people's check on the system, you know, when it works right. And that's why it's necessary for us to make sure that it works right because the the health of our media, I think is directly connected to the health of our democracy. That year, 2015, I was working at my first nine-to-five job out of college in Washington, D.C. I was working at a civil rights organization called the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. It's the largest civil rights group in the country for the rights of Arab Americans. And I was their communications director. I think that working in the belly of the beast at that time, you know, obviously going straight from college to Washington, especially with a poli-sci degree the intent was obviously to dive straight first into how to change the system. Truthfully, I lasted in DC a year (laughs) before I became so disillusioned by what I saw, what I witnessed, mostly the fragmentation of our communities and this lack of harmony in approach that I felt like really splintered our efficacy when it came to really making that change happen at an institutional level. And I think that's where I made the conscious decision to focus on that fourth branch of the government. Like, okay, this is what it looks like out here in DC. And maybe I will be more impactful rather than being another body on the ground trying to change the system from the inside. If I were to cultivate a platform where thousands or millions of voices like mine could all come together and truly be a force. And of course, the objective has always been at its core to empower voices, the marginalized voices, the silenced voices that we don't always get to hear from. But in the long run, I do think that the bigger picture hope was that if we were able to put our voices out there enough, be loud enough, be strong enough, then maybe our presence could shift public opinion in a way that in the long run would influence the policies that were impacting us, that were raining down on us. For me, that feeling of urgency, of necessity, was absolutely due to my own experiences growing up as an American girl that was born and raised in Jersey and just so happened to be Muslim and Middle Eastern. This was the experience that I chronicled in Muslim Girl, A Coming of Age, my first book. And this book was published in October, 2016. Again, it was truly my Hail Mary past. It was surely a miracle, nothing less than a miracle that it was even written and published in time to be out there before the elections happened. But it was my desperate attempt at really translating what that experience was like for me as a child to really warn the public about how we cannot afford to recreate that for the next generation that was almost that was always my fear was thinking about another generation of muslim girls like me growing up having to go through what, what what i went through or even worse obviously i i hoped that the existence of institutions that we built growing up like muslim girl that their presence would make things a little bit easier because we've been through widespread waves like this before. We know what it's like. I might have been just a child when 9-11 happened, but I could still feel and understand the impact of the war on terror on the lives of people that looked like me in this country. I could also acutely feel how that atmosphere impacted my family life. One of the passages in the book that stood out to readers the most was about a moment that I shared with my father in our living room when I was a little girl. It was in fourth grade, right after being called a racial slur for the first time in my life. And, you know, it was one of those situations where public humiliation was involved and all other students around me were laughing at me and my cheeks were red and all of that. For those that are curious and may not have read the book, not judging you or anything, um, that's a lie. No, I'm just kidding. But basically, when I was in fourth grade, a fellow classmate said to me, your people throw rocks at tanks in a derogatory way in front of our other classmates who all found it hilarious. And for me, it was one of the first moments where I was confronted with this concept that I was part of a people, you people, you people throw rocks at tanks. And I couldn't make sense of it. I went home that day crying to my dad, walked into the living room and in tears, I told him what happened. And my dad's response was, he looked at me in the middle of our very Arab living room, you know, covered with Middle Eastern rugs and, you know, little gold lamps and cultural trinkets that you would likely find in an Arab household like ours. And he said, that's something you should be proud of, Baba. Your people throw rocks at tanks. And thinking back to that moment now, now that we're on the other side of four years of Trump, four years of a Muslim ban, it really deeply makes me wonder how many parents have had to have living room conversations like that with their children coming home from school in tears, How many might not have had the luck of a conversation like the one I was able to have with my father at the end of that day? To think of the impact that experience could have on a whole new generation. It could be terrifying, but speaking as a Muslim youth myself, to be honest, I have absolute hope and absolute faith in in our young people, Muslim young people, people of color. I actually have probably never been more hopeful or optimistic about what's to come and about the transition of leadership that my generation is about to witness or is about to compel. I shouldn't say witness. That's a little too passive. We are taking the reins. And I don't think that we're going to stand for the way things were anymore. It really excites me that we are being joined by this generation of Gen Z movers and shakers, like my little brother, who also have grown up witnessing all of this and recognizing that there is no room for this hate to continue in. This new world that we're about to create together. It really blows my mind to think that, you know, five years ago, when the Muslim ban was first being spoken about. Um, you know, kids that were 10, 11, 12 years old, maybe mildly had an idea of what was going on. They're now 15. 16, 17, they're now voting. They're now out here by all definitions of the word, okay? And with that, I, I feel immense pride and just complete excitement and optimism for the future. Over the course of the past four years, and especially when I published my book, I said that it was my love letter to all the little girls that ever cried in the dark I said that I was thinking of those little girls, the little girls that we once were, the little girls that we might give birth to one day, our future daughters, and the world that we want to pass on to them. And because we were those silenced little girls, we've grown up to become our own saviors. And that's something that I don't say lately. That's something that I said five years ago and that I still affirm today, especially witnessing. The fight that young people have put up on social media in the streets and beyond over the past few years. It is truly inspiring. And it makes me think of what's to come. Now, in my detailing all of these experiences, one thing is Astoundingly clear. And that is that the bottom line is Trump did not create Islamophobia in America. Okay. He just proved to all of us something that we've already known, a lesson that history has taught us over and over again already. And that is that Islamophobia can win elections. But he was just exploiting a situation that was already, you know, long, long being fermented in many ways. And we, and obviously we should be just as optimistic about what the next four years will bring, just as hopeful and just as ready to put in the work. But it's important to not look at things with rose-tinted glasses because the fact of the matter is that when Biden was vice president, I still felt like I had to wrap my headscarf in a different way when I left the House any the anniversary of 9-11 rolled around. And still, under Obama's administration, under Biden's leadership, Our communities were negatively impacted in ways that we likely will see continue under his new administration. And that's something that we can't let up the pressure about because just because we got Trump out of office does not mean that we should settle for a reset to how things were five years ago. No, 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 no. Biden got into that office because of us. He owes us So let's put him to work. 9-11 happened over 20 years ago now. Islamophobia has been here for even longer, but of course it accumulated into a systemic wave when the war on terror started after 9-11. And let's remember, Biden has been in office, he's been a politician for a very long time. So this man has a track record, okay? And when I think back to some of the most devastating policies during the war on terror, one thing that definitely comes to mind is absolutely the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act devastated the Muslim community across the country. It basically... Nullified any of our due process rights solely for our religious background anytime national security was invoked, anytime, you know, just the the word terrorism was thrown into the equation. That policy is what made it possible for the government to unleash extensive surveillance networks against Muslims across America. I think the surveillance is really what marks that entire era for Muslim Americans because, you know, our mosques were being infiltrated. Our communities were being infiltrated. People were disappearing. And it was it was really terrifying to feel like you had no safety. You had no protection from the government just because of the fact that you were Muslim. You're part of this religious group that was being scapegoated. And guess what? It's that policy and the systems that Bush put in place as a result of it, it laid the fertile ground for the Obama administration to establish their even wider sweeping counter violent extremism programs. For those who are unfamiliar, those CVE programs were basically government initiatives to tackle Extremism and yet only framed extremism within the context of Islam, making it seem like it was purely defined by those who are Muslim rather than quantitatively including all forms of extremism that are ravaging our country right now, such as white supremacy, such as mass shooters, and many other forms. So it's very easy to see how those programs just added on to the devastation that we had to experience. And that was under Biden's watch. One of the things about Biden's policy record that stands out to me the most is the fact that he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. He was the chairman at the time of the Iraq war. Not just at the time of it. He was the one that helped rally the votes to authorize it. He helped get enough Democrats on board to let Bush authorize a war in Iraq that now, in hindsight, we know was an absolute foreign policy blunder. And obviously Biden has had to tried to backtrack on his policies and comments about the Iraq war many other times but the fact remains okay yes obviously now you have to say like oh yeah it shouldn't have gone the way that it did whatever but it just proves that you didn't have the foresight or you just you didn't have the values necessary in a humane leader to recognize that you should not have hit the red button at that time. And that's a very dangerous miscalculation. It's very easy to say, you know, looking back like, oh, darn, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, we messed up. But that whoopsie moment cost an entire nation <laughs> its security. It cost a million civilian casualties. Those are lives that will never get back. And that just shows how far removed we as Americans can be sometimes the way that our policies play out in other parts of the world. We have tremendous power as voters within America. We do. The decisions we make right here, right now, ripple outward across the rest of the globe. And that's not some American exceptionalism type shit. That's like we have a moral responsibility type thing, you know, and it's hard to ignore the fact that our government was responsible for countless war crimes due to the war on terror, especially in Iraq, and it's fucked up, it's fucked up, it's nothing short of fucked up that The best possible option that we've had happens to also be a political leader that was complicit in one of the biggest policy failures that has devastated Muslims, Arabs, human beings. It sucks. It really does. Well, Biden says that he will end the Muslim ban on his very first day in office. I'm very happy about that. We're all happy about that. To me, that is the ultimate bare minimum to restore some semblance of faith in American democracy, in our constitution. And I just really, really hope that we don't allow the bar to be this low, okay? Like today, on the day that... Five years earlier, we heard the words Muslim ban be proclaimed on national television. Let us take this moment to reflect on where we draw the line as a society, okay, as a nation, but just as a shared humanity. Where do we draw the line in the sand? Because This one is going to be really hard to explain for Muslim kids when they get older, okay? Like, how we let this happen. It's going to be hard to explain to, you know, our, our future kids, our future grandkids. But let's not go back to the way things were, okay? Because the way things were was still not good for the most vulnerable members of our society, for people of color, they were always this way, but Trump really just brought it out in the open. And just because, you know, we have a new leader in the Oval Office, someone that, you know, finally, will have a feeling of being able to hold hold that executive accountable again, right? But the way things were is definitely not enough. We're not organizing to get back to that, okay? We're we're organizing right now to surpass that. And like I said, we brought Biden into office and he owes us. So let's hold him to the standard that we want to see from the president of the United States of America. Because so far, way too many children have had to cry in the dark. And the only way, the only way that our country can redeem itself for the Muslim ban is if we use this, we use this experience to never allow a ban like this to happen for any group of people ever again. That's where we have to draw the line. That is the line in the sand. I'm Amani. And this is The Antidote.